When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Compassion isn't letting people off the hook. Compassion does not allow someone to hurt someone else. That's not compassion, right? So what you have to do is separate the person from the behavior and the action. If we're able to see that just like me, the person in front of me just wants to be treated with respect and dignity. Just like me, this person might like sports or Harry Potter, or maybe they have a dog just like me, or maybe just like me, they like pizza or coffee or sandwiches. It can drastically change that response from seeing the individual as other to seeing the individual as the same, as just like me. And that's, I think that the least amount of steps that we can take toward compassion is creating that sense of common humanity. You're listening to Dr. Janina Scarlett and Sarah Shire on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of Act Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. We've talked a lot about sleep on the podcast, and as mental health professionals, we know that having quality sleep is really important to mood and mental health, and that's why we are excited to pair up with Monta Sleep. They offer innovative sleep masks and other accessories to help you sleep better. I am a dedicated sleep mask wearer. My sleep mask is a lifesaver when my husband's up late reading or on these bright summer mornings when I want to sleep in. And not only does a sleep mask provide me with the dark environment I need for a deeper sleep, I have become classically conditioned to it. Getting out my sleep mask is a cue for bedtime. And like Pavlov's dogs, as soon as I put that thing on, my body remembers that it's time for bed. Well, I'm newer to sleep masks, and I've never used one before until I tried this one, so I was really excited to try it out and see what the hype was all about, and the Monta mask is really light and comfortable, and before I tried it, I don't think I realized how much the light in my bedroom was waking me up in the morning, so now I feel a lot more refreshed when I wake up. So here's what you can expect with Monta sleep masks. There are six different versions to choose from. They all offer 100% blackout for a deeper sleep, are infinitely adjustable for custom fit. They're soft, breathable, have zero pressure on your eyelids or eyelashes, and are made with durable snag-free materials. You can choose from the original sleep mask or a slim sleep mask with barely their feel. You can also go deluxe with a cool mask to soothe your eyes and sinuses, a warm mask with natural steam, a lavender aroma mask to target your scent vents or a weighted mask. So check them out at montasleep.com. Join their social media at, at nap with Monta and at Monta Sleep and get 10% off by entering the coupon code off the clock. <laughs> 
Be sure to check out Praxis Continuing Education for their online trainings. There's a new course, Act in Practice, with Dr. Stephen Hayes coming up. Enrollment begins June 24th. You don't want to miss it. Just go to the sponsors page of offtheclockpsych.com to link to Praxis, and there you'll find a discount code you can use for registration on any live training events. So check it out. We're also affiliates with Dr. Rick Hansen's online neurodharma program and his Foundations of Wellbeing programs. And you can find out more about them at our website, offtheclockpsych.com, where you'll get a $40 discount. Hi, everyone. It's Jill here, and I'm here with Debbie to talk about the episode we have today that's another episode on compassion. And, you know, I know we talk a lot about compassion on the podcast, and I think it's just something you can never quite get enough of. And we really had a very different take on it, I think, today in this episode. So I'm curious, Debbie, what are your thoughts? Well, you know, I love this episode. These stories are so inspiring. And it's just really cool to hear about these interesting things that people are doing to promote compassion in the world and to reach people. And I think in mental health, we often focus on the level of what's happening inside of us, you know, our own thoughts, our own emotion, our own pain and suffering. But truly looking outside of yourself and having this perspective shift toward getting outside of your own problems toward what can I do in the world? Can I think from the perspective of others? Can I do something good in the world and help others and think outside of myself? To me is a really important shift that actually really leads to a lot of meaning and fulfillment. And I think these are two really good examples of people who are bringing something really important out into the world. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, there's a lot of research out there that shows the benefits of compassion, not just for the self, but for others. And I've been thinking about this a lot in that it feels to me that something has shifted over, I don't know, the past decade or so. And I've noticed this truly in myself where there's something happening where we tend to be more self-focused than we used to be. And my suspicion is that that may be related to social media, that, you know, we currently live in a culture where we're constantly thinking about what am I going to post about what's going on with my life and my kids and my vacation? Or if I'm going to share this article that's meant to help other people, what's my take on it? You know, so it's not that I think people are inherently selfish. It's that I think we're living in times that are sort of causing us to move in this more self-focused direction. And compassion is something that teaches us how to break out of that perspective and really think more about others. And I think this episode did that well. And I think these women do that well and are teaching it in incredible ways. I agree. Yeah. It's like bringing us back to the social creatures that we truly are. And I think that's really important that we do that and we keep that perspective. Exactly. And I think what I love the most about this episode and about Dr. Janina Scarlett and Sarah Shire is that they're doing this in ways that are so practical and applicable. Like this is not just for therapists who teach clients, you know, for example, Janina's most recent book is called Dark Agents and it's actually a graphic novel. Uh, I believe it's the first of its kind and it's a graphic novel about characters in a special school and one of them has PTSD And my seven-year-old daughter read it and loved it, and I read it and loved it. So, you know, she's finding ways to reach people across all different ages and stages. 
And, you know, Sarah has this really cool company that we'll talk about in the episode that is reaching people literally all over the planet to, to promote a social movement for greater compassion. You know, they talk in the episode about finding your hero. And I think these two are our heroes. I mean, just the work that they're doing is amazing. I, I completely agree with you. All right, everyone. Well, enjoy this episode with Dr. Janina Scarlett and Sarah Shire. Our sponsor today is Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. I love my Uplift standing desk. It's solid and sturdy and allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. The ability to switch from sitting to standing throughout the day has been a complete game changer for me. I feel so much better than when I sit all day and it helps me stay alert when I get tired. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. Everything you need to up your office game. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash POTC for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com slash P-O-T-C to get 5% off your entire order. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, everyone. I want to start off by saying we are recording this episode in June 2020 in the midst of both a global pandemic uh, going on month three of stay-at-home orders in many places around the world and amidst worldwide protests against systemic racism and police brutality following another senseless murder of an innocent Black man, George Floyd. And I'm so looking forward to my conversation with today's guests because they are both compassion warriors. And goodness knows, the U.S. police and many politicians worldwide and those struggling to care about the health and well-being of their fellow humans could use a giant dose of compassion right now. And I think we all can use a giant dose of compassion right now um, for our fellow humans as well as for ourselves. So I'm doing things a little bit differently today in that this is the first time I'm actually having two guests on in the same episode. So I'm going to kick things off with author and psychologist, Dr. Janina Scarlett, whose books weave together evidence-based concepts and skills from psychology with elements of pop culture. And as I mentioned, they all include a heavy compassion or self-compassion element. And then we'll transition to Sarah Shire, who founded a nonprofit organization called Compassion It to create a worldwide social movement for teaching and spreading compassion. And then at the end, the three of us will come together to dig into how these concepts can help us during this really difficult time. So Dr. Janina Scarlett is a licensed clinical psychologist, a scientist, and a full-time geek. A Ukrainian-born refugee, she survived Chernobyl radiation and persecution. She immigrated to the United States at the age of 12 with her family, and later, inspired by the X-Men, developed superhero therapy to help patients with anxiety, depression, and PTSD. 
Dr. Scarlett was awarded the Eleanor Roosevelt Human Rights Award from the United Nations Association for Superhero Therapy. She is the author of Superhero Therapy, Therapy Quest, Harry Potter Therapy, Dark Agents, Superwomen, and Supernatural Therapy. Sarah Shire is the founder and executive director of Compassionate, a nonprofit organization and global social movement whose mission is to inspire daily compassionate actions and attitudes. A facilitator of the Compassion Cultivation Training Course developed at Stanford University, Sarah has led trainings for audiences of all walks of life, from corporate executives to inmates at a maximum security prison. She also led compassion trainings in Africa, sponsored by the Botswana Ministries of Health and Education, and spent a week at a Rwandan refugee camp working on unleashing compassion within its healthcare system. Sarah is a contributing author to the book, The Neuroscience of Learning and Development, Enhancing Creativity, Compassion, Critical Thinking, and Peace in Education, and writes for Deepak Chopra's Center for Wellbeing website. Sarah gives talks and leads experiential workshops on burnout prevention, implicit bias, mindfulness, and compassion. She also created the one-of-a-kind reversible compassionate wristband that prompts compassionate actions on six continents and over 50 countries and all 50 states. Welcome, Sarah and Janina. I am so pleased to have you here. Thank you so much for having us. It's such an honor. Agreed. So Janina, let's start with you. So as I just read in your bio, you've written six books and all of your books are self-help psychology books that are unique in that they use pop culture at the center of their messaging. So talk to us a little bit about why pop culture and how this may have an added benefit for readers. Well, thank you so much for asking that. I find that a lot of folks have a really hard time talking about their emotions. Uh, a lot of individuals weren't raised to understand their emotional experiences and certainly how to understand them. And I find that pop culture, uh, especially in terms of fiction, can help us to have a mirror to our own experience and for many individuals can allow them to understand what they're going through, to name their experience, and also to find some hope for healing. This work is also very personal for me as uh, pop culture is something that helped me with my own PTSD, both after surviving Chernobyl and after going through uh, some of the horrific persecution that my family and I experienced in Ukraine. And it was the X-Men that turned my life around and showed me the power of being able to understand our own trauma story through the lens of fiction and being able to understand that we're not victims, we're survivors of our experience, and therefore being able to find some post-traumatic growth in in my own story, and which I now use to uh, help other folks with a history of trauma as well. Yeah. And it's a fascinating story. So Janina and Sarah and I all know each other because we're all local here to San Diego. And Janina was a student of mine way back when. And so I've, I've seen you talk, Janina, a few different times. And the very first time I saw you, you know, stand up and give a training on this and talk about your origin story, I was sobbing in tears, <laughs> both because the story is so moving, but also because I was so incredibly proud of this work you're doing and, and how it's making this work, I think, so much more accessible for so many more people and how many people you're reaching because of it. So would you mind sharing that 
story a little bit. You know, in in your books, you have readers discover their origin stories. You know, what were the things that occurred early on that have kind of set them on a path that may start out being not entirely smooth, right? The beginning of the hero's journey and then using the superhero therapy to learn, like you said, kind of overcome trauma. So will you tell us a little bit about your own origin story? Of course. So I was... You know, I was just a few months shy of my third birthday when the Chernobyl nuclear disaster happened. And every single person in Ukraine where I was born and raised was affected. And for me, that was spending most of my childhood in and out of the hospital with my immune system completely shattered. Even a simple cold would land me in the hospital and having multiple nosebleeds that wouldn't clot. And the side effect that still exists to this day is that whenever the weather changes, I would get severe migraines that sometimes lead to seizures. After Soviet Union fell, uh, economy fell really rapidly in Ukraine and on all of former Soviet Union. And unfortunately, Jewish individuals were targeted. And my family and I were targeted in a number of different ways. And Unfortunately, the situation was so dangerous that we had to seek refugee status in secret. So we spent a year waiting for uh, American Embassy to approve our status, uh, all the while hiding this information from the public, because if anyone found out what was happening, then we could be killed for treason. We moved to the United States when I was 12, and I don't know if any of you remember being 12 and being in seventh grade in middle school. Um, yeah, I feel like we should do a separate podcast just for seventh grade survivors, you know? That's a good idea. Um, my son, thankfully, just graduated eighth grade, so he's, he's past middle school now, which is great. Um, but, you know, starting seventh grade and being that weird girl that didn't speak English, that came from a radioactive country, I made a very easy target. And I was bullied regularly. People would ask me if I'm contagious, if I'm radioactive, if I glow in the dark. And as painful as the bullying was, the most painful part of it was feeling incredibly alone. And I didn't know that other kids were also experiencing bullying. I didn't know that other kids were also going through depression. I didn't know that other people were also struggling with mental health. All I, kn all I knew was that I felt so alone that I wanted to die. And it wasn't until I saw the X-Men movie a few years later that I, my life shifted. I, I saw a story about these individuals who were persecuted against for being different. And I felt like I was watching myself on the screen. But I also looked around in a very packed, sold-out theater where everybody else was watching and everybody else was crying. And in that moment, I realized that everybody else was feeling alone. I'm getting choked up just talking about it, where even if people didn't have the same persecution experiences I did, they knew what it was like to feel alone, to feel different, and to just want to belong. And it was in that moment that I realized that I wasn't a victim. I was a survivor. And I realized that the X-Men had something very special where they used their pain to become these amazing superheroes who stood for good, who helped other people. And so it was after seeing that movie that I immediately signed up for psychology class in high school and fell in love with psychology and realized that we can use stories to help facilitate change through the lens of fiction by helping people understand that they're not alone, which I think is fundamental in healing. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what an incredibly powerful story and just uh, so inspiring that such a story of growth and survival. And so I'm curious, several of your books, like you have superhero therapy and now super women, which is like the women's version of superhero therapy, which I just finished reading. It was wonderful. Um, but one of the things that strikes me is that you you call it superhero therapy, but it's really not just about superheroes and comic book characters. And one of the things I loved about your superwoman book is, as I've shared with you, I think any woman reading this will see herself or themselves in it. Um, but, you know, Harry Potter therapy, Harry Potter's not a superhero per se. So tell us a little bit about how, like, if if someone were to walk in your office and maybe they hate. Star Wars or comic books, or how do you sort of individually tailor this to the person in front of you to sort of get out of them? Like, what are the pop culture influences in their life that that you think you can help them really connect with to be able to move forward in this way? Such a great question. And I get asked this question a lot because it's true. Not everyone relates to pop culture, but I think everyone has a hero. And this hero could be a real life person, like maybe a parent or a grandparent, even if that person is no longer alive. It could be a teacher that we've had, such as, you know, you being one of my heroes. And, uh, you know, or it could be an athlete, it could be a celebrity, an influencer, or it could be a fictional character. So to me, a hero is someone that we look up to. A hero is someone that inspires change. And in therapy, my focus then as a superhero therapy provider is to encourage my client to identify their hero and it could be multiple heroes too and then use their hero as a role model to become their own version of a superhero in real life such as by being an advocate for example against racism or misogyny or violence uh, such as uh, by speaking out about mental health or helping other people or facing their biggest fears or, or talking about their trauma what Whatever that vision is, it's them becoming their own version of a hero in real life through this kind of mentorship. Mm, I love it. And you have a number of powerful examples. And I'm wondering if you could share, you know, two come to mind for me. One is kind of the first example when you were working with military. You also have the, the Veronica Mars example. And I think both of those are incredible. You know, they really illustrate what this looks like in practice. Do you want to give us a snapshot of both of those? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for asking. So in my postdoctoral training, I was working at Camp Pendleton, working with active duty Marines who had just returned from the war, from Afghanistan, from Iraq. And unfortunately, a lot of these individuals believed themselves to be a failure for having developed PTSD. These individuals were groomed for combat. They were incredibly resilient. And given the atrocities that they faced, it was not surprising that they developed PTSD. And so time after time after time, I would hear these incredible individuals tell me, I wanted to be Superman. I failed. And this line would just break my heart because they they shamed themselves for developing a mental health disorder. And so I started using Socratic questioning based on pop culture. So I would ask, well, is Superman truly invincible or does he have any kind of vulnerability? 
And they would say, well, yeah, okay, he's vulnerable to kryptonite, which for those of you who don't know, kryptonite is this green substance from Superman's home planet that weakens his powers. And in large enough quantities, it can actually kill him. So then I would ask, well, does Superman being vulnerable to kryptonite make him any less of a superhero? And of course, all my clients were quick to defend him and they would say, no, of course not. He's still a superhero. And then there'd be a pause and then a light bulb moment and then a big smile. And then they would say, okay, I see what you did there. Because the truth is, all our heroes have vulnerabilities and it's not despite of them, it's because of them that we care. We want to see the kind of hero that overcomes obstacles because it reminds us that we can do the same. It's not about the fact that dragons exist. It's about the fact that dragons can be beaten. That's the metaphor here. And so with using Superman, I was able to see incredible changes in my client's perspective on therapy and of their own experience because rather than shaming themselves, they were now aligned with Superman. And so that's the military experience. And I was, um, I also now primarily work with civilians, which also includes veterans. Uh, but uh, the Veronica Mars story has to do with a 15-year-old girl that I was working with uh, who came in for severe depression. She also had been engaging in self-harm and she had been bullied in her school. And she struggled talking about her experiences so much that she would often look to her father to speak for her. She would refuse to let him leave the room and just absolutely terrified to uh, talking about her experiences but she was willing to talk about her favorite show Veronica Mars which I knew absolutely nothing about uh, in fact I thought it was a sci-fi show and because she was so excited and she kept saying how much she relates to the le leading protagonist I decided to check it out so I went home fully intending to watch the first episode and I accidentally watched the entire season in one evening because the show's amazing. It's on Hulu now in the United States. I highly recommend it. And the reason why is because it depicts just about every single thing that a teenager can go through. So before the show even opens, Veronica Mars had been drugged and sexually assaulted her parents are getting a divorce. Her mom has an addiction problem. Veronica's boyfriend broke up with her. All her friends hate her now. Her best friend was murdered. And Veronica is being bullied pretty much by the entire school and is completely alone in all, all her grief and trauma. And that's the part that my client was relating to. What she didn't see or maybe didn't quite understand was Veronica's incredible development because throughout the series, Veronica becomes essentially a teenage Sherlock Holmes. She uses her detective skills to solve crimes and help people over time, not only healing from her trauma, but also gaining friends and becoming this incredible hero. So when I went back the following week, I told my client, I said, hey, I understand why you like the show because I, I see how you can relate to Veronica's experiences, but she also uses her skills, her, her abilities to help other people. So maybe we can do the same for you. So I said, what do you have? And I'll never forget this moment because she looked at me with these big eyes full of tears and she said, I have depression. And to this day, I remember that heartbreak. And then also this moment of, wait a minute, we can use this. And I said, well, does anyone else in your school have depression? And she said, mm -hmm, I don't know, maybe one or two people. So I said, what would Veronica do? And she paused. 
And she didn't look to her dad. She looked at me. And she said, Veronica wouldn't keep silent. She would do something. She'd make a speech. And I kind of was speechless for a while. But by the time I answered, I said, is this what you want to do? And she said, yes. So we spent two weeks preparing and rehearsing and practicing. And then she actually did it. She stood up in front of her class and gave a five-minute speech talking about her mental health. And she even shared some of the things that she never shared with me or her parents, such as that sometimes she has suicidal thoughts. And she shared that with her class to let them know that if they're having these kind of feelings and ideations, that they're not alone. She encouraged them to ask her questions about mental health or to talk to her if they need help or if they need help finding a therapist. And that was it. It was just a five-minute talk. But the result of that was incredible because at the end of it, everyone rushed over to her. Everyone was hugging her and crying. And at the end of the week, the whole school knew and everyone was stopping her in the hallway and messaging her and thanking her because everyone needed someone to share their story. And maybe not everyone had the same details of their experience, but everyone needed someone to talk to. So a few months later, she started her school's own mental health support group. And she still struggles but now she doesn't have to go through it alone. And that's what superhero therapy is about. Ugh, I just, I could listen to that story a hundred more times. And, uh, you know, I get goosebumps every single time. It just, I love it so much. And good for her. I think that is, she is a true superhero. That's incredible. And to think about, you know, how many lives she's been able to to touch, not because there was an absence of kryptonite, you know, not because yes. there was an absence of vulnerability or challenge, but because there were those things, which is just so amazing. So tell us a little bit about how compassion and self-compassion play a role in superhero therapy. Yeah. So uh, I view self-compassion as like a magic potion, as a magic charm that we can all imply, apply to kind of boost ourselves, to give ourselves uh, that, that energy that we need in order to become the kind of hero that we want to be. And compassion then becomes an action. Not only a feeling, but also an action where a person can be present with their feelings of compassion towards somebody else and then not only intend but also participate in being compassionate toward that individual, whether it's through a meditation or through reaching out. And so we look at it as a, a part of a hero's journey where self-compassion is a power-up and compassion is the quest. And so uh, that's, that's one of the actual goals of treatment. I love it. That's so great. Well, why don't we, especially because this is such a nice natural segue, because you're talking about compassion essentially as a verb or something we do, an action we take. So I want to turn it over to Sarah now. And, you know, I use compassion and self-compassion practices in the therapy room as well. And one of the things I find is that, you know, people really connect with these practices. They're incredibly powerful. And then I find that sometimes I sort of struggle to apply them outside of the therapy room. So even when we're engaging in applied experiential practices 
in the therapy room that they can take with them, there's like, it becomes harder when they're like on their own out in the world. And so I think this is a perfect place to bring Sarah into the conversation, especially because Janina, you were just talking about compassion as an action. Um, Because I think Sarah's nonprofit organization, Compassionate, um, you know, this is what they're doing. They're working hard to find solutions to this very problem of like action and application. So Sarah, can you tell us a little bit about what Compassionate is um, and, you know, how we might use some of the things that you're doing to be more active in our practice and application of Compassion? Yes. Thank you. Compassion it is two words. Sounds like compassionate, but it's two words making compassion a verb, as you previously mentioned. And it's a nonprofit, as you also mentioned before. And our mission is to inspire compassionate actions and attitudes. And our goal is to make compassion accessible. So compassion People maybe have heard of the word, but people have various definitions of the word. And we want to say, okay, this is what compassion is, and these are ways you can compassion it. And we want it to be simple and accessible. So the definition of compassion that we use is that it's a response to suffering, right? We, it's this awareness of suffering and the willingness, the desire and the willingness to relieve that suffering. So we offer simple ways that a person can compassionate. And we have a simple tool that helps people remember to compassionate. So that tool is a reversible wristband that says compassion it on it. And every time you do an act of compassion, you flip it from one side to the other. And we also have a self-compassionate version as well. And it's impossible to ignore this thing that's on your wrist because it's really hard to act like a jerk when you have something that says compassionate right, staring at you in your face. And it's also a nice, uh, it's a reward, right? You get a little hit every time you get to flip your wristband, which I think also reinforces this positive feeling you get from practicing compassion. So my team and I are constantly trying to figure out ways to make compassion accessible and scalable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, you also, like Janina, have some incredible kind of success stories. I love that people get in touch with you to let you know that they've seen, you know, when they've spotted bracelets out in the wild. I know Zach Braff was spotted wearing one at one point and you've heard, um, I mean, almost every continent now, right? There has been represented by Compassionate. Will you tell us, you know, one of your success stories um, I'm thinking about the the town that experienced a couple deaths that were close to each other. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that it actually helped launch Compassionate. So this was back in 2012, and this town of Northbrook, Illinois, in the summer experienced tremendous loss. They had three teenagers die within three weeks, two to suicide, and one in a car accident. And it's a very close knit community, and and people were suffering. It was, it was too much to bear. And a couple, a couple volunteers for Compassionate reached out and said, we need Compassionate here in our town. We really think it can help. So I, at that time, we had just ordered wristbands. I think we had a thousand of them. And um, I said, well, I'll ship you all the wristbands we have. And you can sell them as a fundraiser in honor of these boys. We don't need to make money off of this. So they, they sold them. And then we, there were about a thousand people in the community compassioning it in honor of those three boys. And then the stories 
began pouring in to the Facebook page, just people talking about how doing these acts of compassion in honor of those boys was helping them heal and grieve. And it was bringing this um, positive energy and healing energy to this community that so desperately needed it. And so we could see that was just the power of a wristband helping to bring bring healing to a community through compassion. And we knew because that was really the first time the wristbands had been used in any way, that's when we knew, wow, this is something so simple that can be tremendously powerful for people. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. You know, it can be these like mm-hmm. simple, small steps that make an enormous, enormous difference. Um, mm-hmm. And you also have a pretty cool origin story for how, how you even came up with this idea in the first place. Would you be willing to share that with our listeners? Sure, sure. So back in 2008, I was going through a, a very tough time. I was facing an unwanted divorce. My daughter was just a little bit over a year old. And I had quit my job to stay home with her. And I was a, a stay-at-home mom. And it was the economic fallout of 2008. So I tried to get a job and I couldn't. So I spent a lot of time crying and sitting on the couch watching daytime television while she napped. And I happened to catch an Ellen episode where um, she was interviewing Wayne Dyer, who's a speaker and author who has since passed away. But he was talking about compassion. And he said, it's the most important lesson to teach our kids. We need to teach our children to put themselves in another's shoes. And if we do that, we could solve every social problem on the planet. No more war, no more hunger, you name it. Compassion is the answer. And I had been raised to be compassionate, but I had never thought about the power of compassion until I heard him say that. And I could not get it out of my head. And that very evening, the word compassionate turned into this two-word phrase. And I saw it as a a bumper sticker, black and white, very simple, compassion it. And I thought, oh my gosh, this makes so much sense. And uh, I got the trademark. Actually, thanks to your help with that, Jill, I got the trademark for stickers and then kept postponing it for years and began living my life that way and recognizing when I compassion it, things just go better. Things are a lot more smooth when I put myself in another's shoes and try to see their perspective and try to help. Whether it's, uh, <laughs> whether I'm going through a divorce and struggling with you know, my daughter's father or whether it's a challenging colleague, whatever the situation may be, when I remembered to bring compassion into the situation, I was able to handle it with much more skill. So, and I felt better, frankly. So um, I knew that this phrase was powerful. And so in a, a couple years later, I made stickers and gave them away and started getting great feedback about them that turned into t-shirts that turned into these wristbands. And then because of my obsession with compassion, I went through a training at Stanford University to get certified to teach an eight-week course on compassion. And so now compassion started as this brand that sold products, and now we are an education platform. So I teach compassion. Mm-hmm. It's so cool. And I will never forget the day I was I was over your house and you know, you, you said something like, Can I show you something? Can it will you tell me if this makes sense to you? And you just hand wrote compassion 
space, it, period, on a scrap piece of paper. And I was like, oh, right? I mean, just like chills and goosebumps. And you're like, is this stupid? Like, do I have a thing here? I was like, oh my gosh, this is brilliant. And I just think it's so cool. And it's mm-hmm. such a it's such a cool story. Good thing I wasn't like, mm, no, I don't get it. <laughs> Seriously. It, there are a couple of people that I sort of flirted it by. And if anybody had had that reaction, there's a very good chance I would have been like, okay, never mind. Well, hopefully you would have had the wisdom to move on to someone smarter until someone <laughs> until someone said, yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> so tell us, what are some of the, you know, in, in relation to this kind of transition from a company that sells products to this more global social movement, you know, you, you did get nonprofit status. And so the money that does come in from the products you sell then goes back out, right? Toward things mm-hmm. like bullying, education. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the ways that you're, you know, other than the, the, the bracelets, like getting this education out there into the world? Yeah, so my teammate, Burrell Poe, who is based out of Chicago, he and I are committed to making compassion accessible. So we do lead trainings. Now we focus a lot on workplaces that uh, can help, workplaces that need to create environments of compassion, which is especially important right now. Um, and we, we decided on concentrating on, on workplaces for a couple of reasons. And mainly it's because we can get paid. Uh, it's, it's not so easy to run a nonprofit. And we found that we can get paid by organizations that can pay us. And then that allows us to do our training for organizations that can't. So we're, we, have, we lead trainings quite often pro bono for nonprofit organizations, or I go into schools. Um, I teach my class at the women's jail here in San Diego. I've taught at the men's prison here in San Diego. And none of that is paid. But we are able to get funded by getting paid to do our work. That's a brilliant model. What do you think about doing some compassion training with Congress? You know what? (laughs) I would give anything. And I don't know if you remember, but four years ago, we had a a campaign where people could purchase compassionate wristbands and we would send them to their senators. They They could write a note and we would handwrite notes to their particular state Senate senators and then send the wristbands. And I had one woman who every time she got paid, she would send me $10 and would ask me to send wristbands to Donald Trump. And so month after month after month. So we were trying, that was our one way of like trying to get in there. Uh, Yes, every facet of society would benefit from compassion training. It's Patricia Karpis, host of Untangle, the award-winning podcast that covers topics like optimizing brain health, finding your purpose, how to sleep better, harnessing the power of anxiety, successfully changing habits, finding more happiness and joy, and overall, all the many ways to live your best life. If you enjoy hearing from thought leaders, neuroscientists, psychologists, nutritionists, business leaders, and more, join us wherever you listen to podcasts. You know, this is a nice mm-hmm. th- nice transition there because it certainly does seem to me that, you know, there's a real lack of compassion at the center of many of the difficult things that are going on in the world right now. And, you know, and I I don't mean to oversimplify, you know, clearly there are many complex layers to hundreds of years of 
organizational and systemic racism and sexism and homophobia and transphobia. But, you know, I see things like um, people ignoring recommendations for how to safely navigate the COVID-19 pandemic. So, you know, we all saw the photos over Memorial Day weekend here in the U.S. where people were congregating very closely, not wearing masks. um, Or, you know, we hear individuals making comments about all lives matter. And I think, you know, this isn't just a lack of information or knowledge, right? Like that the education is out there, no doubt. Um, and that there just that there has to be a lack of compassion at, that at least plays part of a role in all of this. And so I'm wondering if you guys could each talk a little bit about what you think the role of compassion or, or really the lack thereof may be playing in, in some of these behaviors that we're seeing. I think for some folks, there's the kind of this us versus them mentality, right? Where they're seeing their in-group as one group and the out-group as another group. And and as a result of this, unfortunately, produces this dehumanization effect, which neuroscientific studies are actually finding that people in an MRI who see images of individuals that they consider to be in an out-group are not perceived as human. Just like let that sink in for a moment because that means that they do not see the humanity of that person. And in fact, for some individuals, when they see typically stigmatized groups, such as, for example, homeless individuals or individuals of a different maybe racial group that they maybe consider an outgroup, sometimes in addition to uh, a lack of compassion, there's even anger or disgust that shows up as, a, uh, as an activation in the insular area of the brain, uh, suggesting that they're perceiving these images to not be human and, and, and similar to, um, to something that they wouldn't care for. But what's really interesting is that if we can bring on an element of common humanity, the recognition that we're all humans, we're all in this together, by even asking a simple question such as, what do you think this person in this picture likes to eat? Just even allowing the person to put themselves in another person's shoes for one moment about a simple topic, uh, such as what kind of food they might like, what kind of music they might like to listen to, can drastically change that response and bring on that humanizing activation within the compassion centers of the brain. If we're able to see that just like me, the person in front of me just wants to be treated with respect and dignity, just like me, this person might like sports or Harry Potter, or maybe they have a dog just like me, or maybe just like me, they like pizza or coffee or sandwiches. It can drastically change that response from seeing the individual as other to seeing the individual as the same, as just like me. And that's, I think, that the least amount of steps that we can take toward compassion is creating that sense of common humanity. And then after that, I think it might be easier for other folks to develop a a deeper sense of compassion and understanding, maybe even the willingness to listen. But to me, that understanding of just like me is foundational. That's so interesting and such a good point. And you're reminding me of Something I heard, and I don't remember if if it was a, a study or um, you know where it came from, but 
it was something to the effect of, you know, we used to think that in this, in the in-group, out-group thing that, you know, we used to think that like, if you look at radical Muslim extremists, for example, that there was a lack of compassion, right? And that part seems obvious how that could be connected. And what they were talking about um, is, is that studies have found there's actually almost too much compassion, but only within the in-group. Yes. So that they, they connect and identify so much with each other and that the more compassion you have and the more bonding you have, the more oxytocin is produced. And it's this very reinforcing experience to be part of that in-group and have those affiliative feelings toward each other, but then mm-hmm. it creates that much more of a disconnect yeah. between, you know, the, the people like you're saying who are, who are sort of other essentially. Well, I wanted to throw this out there because what I've found is people similar to me care for others, right? And maybe people who listen to this podcast, they don't understand why those protesters would not have masks and be demanding that we, you know, it seems to have disregard for others, right? We, we don't quite get that. So then my struggle is how do I have compassion for them or for leaders who are perpetuating the system, right? That's my own internal struggle. And I think that's something we have to think about too. When we say everybody deserves compassion, that means everybody. Yeah. So what does compassion look like when we're talking about having compassion for violent police officers. And I, well, but can I back up, back you up for a second? Yeah. Why yeah. do you think that's important? I, I, to, I, I hear what you're saying and I'm totally guilty of that too. I have compassion for the people who believe the same social justice opinions that I do. Why is that important? Cause you could see that people would say, no, that those, those racist police don't deserve compassion. Why does that matter? Well, I think we need to make sure everybody understands what compassion is first before I answer that question, because compassion isn't letting people off the hook. Compassion does not allow someone to hurt someone else. That's not compassion, right? So what you have to do is separate the person from the behavior and the action. And I can say, what you're doing is not okay. I will not stand for that. You as a person, as a human being, man, I wish you could feel safe and have peace. Because if you did, I bet you you wouldn't act that way. That's why it matters. Because if our leaders had peace and felt safe and cared, they wouldn't act in this way. I love that. It's true. That That is why compassion applies to everyone. Yeah. Trying to understand the pain that is driving some of these choices in the first place. Exactly. Yeah. Being curious. Where, where is that coming from? Or even imagining what must it have been like for you growing up? Or what kind of childhood did you have where this is now how you act? And that's okay, right? So, and again, not, not condoning the behavior ever but seeing people as seeing their humanity. Yeah, I love I that. Love that. Um, and I would also like to add that compassion is a practice. And as a practice, it can also be gradual. So what that means is that when we're seeing so much devastation, so much trauma, 
it can be very difficult to have compassion toward individuals that we see as perpetrators. And so it might mean that we maybe aren't ready yet to have compassion toward difficult people. So we can start with having compassion toward people for whom it's easier for us to have compassion toward, such as people that we can relate to and identify with, maybe people who are suffering the most right now, kind of like triaging, right? Like an EMT at the scene. So maybe going to the individual that's bleeding the most. So maybe initially practicing compassion toward individuals whose family members were killed or individuals who were harassed or hurt by the current events, for example. Um, Also, our own trauma and our own suffering shows up too. And behind the anger that we might feel toward police officers, toward the government, is our own suffering. So we can offer compassion toward ourselves as well, because we're a part of this movement and a part of this process. And it might take time. So if today we're not in a place where we're ready to fully practice compassion toward a difficult person, maybe we don't have to, but maybe we can even set an intention such as maybe one day I can get there. For now, I can focus on the people for whom it's easier, but I can keep doing this work where I can maybe one day expand my heart to have compassion for everyone. That's perfect. And I also want to add, you can say to yourself, maybe I am not ready to have compassion, but what I can commit to is not harming, Mm. not adding more suffering. So what about, so one of the things I'm thinking about related to this is trying to fight sexism is something that's become incredibly important to me for a variety of reasons. And, you know, I'll write blogs about this with very concrete steps for things people can do right now. But it occurred to me that the majority of people who are reading these articles are just other feminists, right? It's that whole like echo chamber issue. And of course, like we need men to care about women's issues and to, to join the fight, just like we need white people to care about the rights of people of color and we need straight people to fight for the rights of LGBTQ individuals and so on and so forth. I, I guess where I'm going with this is like, how do we reach everyone? Like how, this is a big question, I know, but like, mm-hmm. how do we reach the people we most need? Re- and I guess based on what you were saying, Sarah, really, we need to reach everyone, because even those of us who think, you know, even those of us who believe in equal rights for all humans still have to work on having compassion for people who are different from ourselves. But if we think about the people we we genuinely think are really lacking compassion around seeing everyone as human and fundamentally deserving of equality, um, how do we, how do we reach them? How do we, how do we get out of just this like echo chamber phenomenon and like really reach the people that need to be reached and like convince them that this matters and is helpful, not just to other people, but to them too. It heals your own wounds to become a more compassionate human. I personally think that trying to understand their perspective is helpful, right? So if you have individuals in your life that perhaps you'd like to, maybe they could see things a little more skillfully or or differently, or maybe you feel that they don't value all human lives, that you could engage them one-on-one and and not come at a place of, I need to convert you to my view. Instead, come from a place of, I I just want to understand because I care about you as a human. And really engaging in a a 
helpful dialogue around it that doesn't get heated, that doesn't shame anyone, but instead is coming from a place of understanding. That's, those are my, that's my thought. And then I always come back to the best thing I can do is lead by example. And I don't know who's saying it. I, I know that I grew up in a small town in Illinois and perhaps someone is inspired by something they see and they're curious to learn more. And I don't know, but that's my hope. Well, I know there's one example of, you know, your daughter, didn't she win an award at school for being like the most compassionate student or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. She's pretty remarkable. Right. And trust well, me, she doesn't want to talk about compassion. And if I even tell her to breathe, she's annoyed with me. So she's 13. But right. it's sinking but in just because she's, she's That's exactly it. it. I mean, I think, yeah. you know, what you're pointing at really is that like people do what we do, not what we tell them to do. You know, that's what leading by example is all about. I think that's really, it's a good thought. It's a good I start. also think that everyone wants to be the hero of their own journey. And so whether it's people that think one way or people that think another way, I think that a lot of folks on all sides of the issues that we're talking about believe that they're right because they believe that's the right thing to do. And mm-hmm. I think the maybe one of the ways that we can maybe get at potential changes is by allowing the individual to be the hero of their journey by helping somehow so that they're able to take maybe one action in the right direction where they can feel maybe over time empowered and inspired. And so it can start with just a small action and over time can allow that person to see a different side of events. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The other thing that just occurred to me too around self-compassion that I think can be important, especially for people who, maybe the people who are starting to be the heroes of their own journey and they're starting to venture into more activism if they've otherwise been quiet, is to really practice self-compassion around mistakes because we're going to get it wrong. And, you know, I've heard a lot of people talking about one of the challenges of, you know, fighting for social justice right now is feeling a lot of confusion. So on the one hand, I'll give you an example. Like on the one hand, I'm hearing people say, um, um, you know, don't, don't ask your black friends and colleagues to tell you what you need to do. Like they're tired figure it out, do the work yourself. And I'm like, yes, right. That makes so much sense. But then you hear similar messages saying, you all need to be quiet and listen. This is a time for your black friends and colleagues to speak up and you need to learn from them. And and there are other examples of that incongruent messages. And I think two things happen. I think one, people get stuck in the confusion and it stops them from moving forward because they don't know the quote unquote right thing to do. So I think when we can make space for those difficult feelings and that dissonance and move forward anyway, that's super important. And then if you move forward and you get it wrong, or even, I don't even want to say get it wrong because I think there's a lot of right ways to do things. But even if you're doing something that's a right way, it still might not land well, right? Like there may be somebody who doesn't like the way you went about it. 
And if that results in a feeling of shame, which it often does, it's like an example of moral injury because you're trying to do the right thing, but you feel like you've done the wrong thing. And that when you feel shame, you know, as humans, we work very hard to avoid shame and it can be so tempting to run right back into the safety of your comfort zone. And I think this is a place where self-compassion can be really helpful and make it more likely that we'll persist even in the face of those difficult emotions. Well said. I think you're absolutely right. So on that note, how would you guys feel about doing an actual exercise? I think it would be really, you know, we're talking a lot about these things and we're talking about the importance of applying these things. So why don't we give people something that they can practice and apply? Um, And for anyone who doesn't want to listen to this um, experiential exercise, I'll say now that if you want to find Janina and Sarah, we'll put all of their information, their websites, where you can get their books, et cetera. We'll put all of that stuff in the show notes. Um, But for anybody else who wants to stick around and actually have a compassion practice, Sarah, do you want to lead us in a compassion practice? Sure. So we'll do a brief loving kindness practice that will help us cultivate feelings of warmth and compassion for ourselves, for our fellow community members, for our fellow national citizens, and for everyone on the planet. And during this practice, if at any point in time you feel overwhelmed, feel free to disengage from the practice and open your eyes or return to the breath or just feel your feet on the ground. Okay, so let's get started. I invite you to close your eyes if that's okay for you or you can cast your gaze down and focus in your eyes. And why don't we take a few deep cleansing breaths together to start. So exhaling everything out. Inhaling through the nose and filling the lungs to capacity. And then exhaling out of the mouth, almost like a sigh. Again, inhaling through the nose and filling the lungs. Exhaling. And once more, inhaling. And exhaling. And now closing the lips and breathing in and out of the nostrils. Tuning into the breath in and the breath out. Relaxing the forehead, the eyes, the jaw. Softening the shoulders the belly, the hands. And taking a moment to settle the mind by simply focusing on inhaling and exhaling.
I invite you to take a moment and recognize or bring your attention to the body. Notice if you're holding on to any tension or stress, any concern in the body. Maybe you're tight or tense. And perhaps giving yourself soothing touch like a hand on the heart or holding your own hand or even placing the hands wherever you feel that tension or tightness. Giving yourself the comfort you need through this warm, soothing touch. And saying to yourself as if you're looking in a mirror, may you feel peace. May you be safe. May you be healthy. Again, repeating the phrase, may you feel peace. May you be safe. May you be healthy. And from this place of self-compassion, I invite you to expand that compassion out to the people in your community. Recognizing that like you, they want to be free from suffering. And saying in your mind to those in your community, may you find peace. May you be safe. May you be healthy. Again, may you find peace. May you be safe. May you be healthy. And allowing that circle of compassion to expand and include everyone in your nation. Offering the same compassionate wishes. May you find peace. May you be safe. May you be healthy. And now extend, extending that compassion to everyone on our planet, knowing that just like you, every single person wishes to be free from suffering. And knowing we are all in this together. <clears throat> and in your mind saying to everyone, may you find peace. May you be safe. May you be healthy.
So now bringing your attention back to the body. And scanning the body from head to toe, noticing if there have been any, effect, any effects on the body, the mind, the heart. May this practice benefit the well-being of all. When you're ready, you can open your eyes. Thank you so much. That was wonderful. Well, I want to thank both Janina and Sarah so much for being here today. It was a great conversation, and I hope our listeners will find it useful and that they'll come find you in all the places that you can be found. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to Psychologist Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, and you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd like to thank our interns, Dr. Catherine Foley-Saldania and Dr. Katie Lear. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our webpage, offtheclockpsych.com.